Hello and welcome aboard This Island Nation, the Maritime Programme. Tom McSweeney here with the programme about Ireland's maritime culture, history, tradition and development. On this edition, even with modern technology and a modern ice-breaking ship, an expedition is defeated by Antarctic weather and learns respect for what Ernest Shackleton and his team achieved. We had to leave in this modern polar research vessel that can break through the ice. What Shackleton and his men must have experienced and how much of heroes all of those men were. And microplastics are everywhere. From fresh water, they're threatening the marine environment. Of course, the whole story about plastics in the environment, which then slowly moved towards microplastics, the smaller plastics, is a marine story, essentially a marine story. But a lot of those plastics come from the freshwater environment. So they come down our rivers, enter the, uh, the marine environment. This Island Nation is Ireland's maritime radio show, a reflective programme about the sea coming to you from the studios of CRY 104FM in Yole on the East Cork coastline, bringing together through the community radio network the maritime community around Ireland. We hear a lot of talk about microplastics in the marine environment. They are everywhere and come from the freshwater environment of our rivers into the sea. So I learned from Professor Marcel Janssen at the School of Biological Earth and Environmental Sciences in University College Cork. He focuses on this research. I talked to him after scientists from Ireland, Scotland, Belgium and London had met in Cork to discuss plastic pollution, monitoring it and the problems which microplastics contain for the food chain. Well, there certainly is a very serious threat. Uh, microplastics, we know now they're everywhere in the environment. Wherever we look, we do find microplastics. Uh, recent studies came up with products as diverse as beer, bread, honey, uh, which all contain microplastics. How do these microplastics get there? It's the, 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 the conclusion we have to come to. Microplastics are everywhere in the environment. And of course, we know already for quite a few years that they uh, accumulate in, let's say, fish in the oceans, uh, that in the gut uh, of fish you can find plastics, drinking water. But it's actually now entering our food products and we are consuming those microplastics. So in that sense, this is very serious and we should not underestimate it. At the same time, uh, some of the stories about the impacts of those plastics on the organisms concerned, and that include humans, actually very poorly understood. So uh, we don't actually know exactly what's happening. Uh, we know a few marine organisms where there are effects on, for instance, uh, uh, reproduction, but by and large, we don't know what's going on. So we need to be a little bit careful with scaremongering of uh, animals starting to die. We don't know that for sure. We don't know what is the negative impact, how important it is relative to other factors. Think about climate change. Uh, and we need to be very critical and, and get scientific data. That's the, uh, the key message here. That's putting it across in, in, in a different way that we've kind of heard because there has been a lot of um, scary, I suppose, um, reportage about it. Your research group is dealing specifically with the effects at the moment. You're studying freshwater. 
That's right. Um, of course, the whole story about plastics in the environment, which then slowly moved towards microplastics, the smaller plastics, is a marine story, essentially a marine story. But a lot of those plastics come from the freshwater environment. So they come down our rivers, enter the uh, the marine environment. So it's actually understanding of what's in, happening in the terrestrial and the freshwater environment that is actually central for being able to control the still rising levels of plastics in the marine environment. So that's why the, the, the freshwater environment is so important. There's really, as was put at this international gathering, a, a lack of understanding then of the entire plastic situation, to put it like that. Yeah. Yes, there are two really big questions that are being asked. Is How much plastic is out there? And you might think, we know that by now. Actually, we don't. So you run into a situation where different research groups worldwide are measuring plastics and they come to wildly different numbers, even if they would be looking at the same, let's say, sediment. There's no standardized way of measuring plastics, but it's actually far worse than that. It's not that difficult to measure the bigger plastics. We still call them microplastic, but let's say they're a millimeter across. You can bear, well, you can just about see them with your eye. But from a biological perspective, the much smaller microplastics are probably much more of a threat, particularly those that are smaller than a cell, cell the building block of any living organisms. So plastics which can penetrate cells, maybe puncture cells and, and, and damage cells. These are the important. But these are very, very difficult to measure in the natural environment. So we are measuring the bigger plastics, although we know that these are not the real trouble. It's the very small micro or even nanoscale plastics, which is uh, one billion times less than, uh, than, than a meter in terms of size. These are the ones that, that are the real threat for the future. And your research, you're looking now, for example, at river shrimps, the effect on small aquatic creatures, these river shrimps grazing on plants we'd understand, like duckweed. All of this relative to the, the human strain eventually... It's actually, I came from a, a, a funny way into the microplastics. I'm really a plant scientist. And as a plant scientist, I look at some of the, the effects that uh, that the environment can have on the growth of plants. And uh, we were aware that very little is done about uh, macrophytes, aquatic plants, and the effect of, 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 uh, that, that microplastics can have on those plants. So we started look, And one of the things we found very easily with duckweed is actually they... I would almost say, acting as a magnet for microplastics. So those microplastics in large numbers are sticking to plants. So if you take your typical pondweed, duckweed uh, plant, which is so common in Ireland on on slow-flowing rivers, ponds, etc., if you millimeter across, that's the whole plant, right? It contains hundreds of plastics at some places. So they are really sticking uh, to the plant. Now, that's not the end. Effect on the plant actually are pretty minimal is our, our, our impression. But when something starts to eat those plants, they consume the plant tissue as well as the, the microplastics. So this is what you call a trophic interaction, a food chain interaction, where the plastics attracted by the plants are then passed on on the, uh, the food chain. And without wanting to scaremonger, uh, because again, there's a lot we don't know, 
but if you think our story of the uh, the seventies, eighties about DDT, uh, why were the effects of DDT so dramatic in the uh, the bigger birds? And as of course these things are being passed on to the food chain. So so small algae might have accumulated uh, small plankt- uh, plankton might have accumulated DDT that's passed on to small fish, bigger fish, than than birds of prey. And there we saw those dramatic effects. And here we see something similar that microplastics are passed on through the uh, the food chain. So we don't know how that continues if you go higher in the food chain, but we look at a very sim- simple system, a duckweed, a very common plant, and the, uh, the the common river shrimp, which is very common in streams, and, and we see that those shrimps pick up the um, the, the beads, micro beads we use uh, from the duckweed with their food. It's an amazing widespread subject because the public perception will probably be of what they've heard about these floating lakes or whatever, plastic in the oceans, uh, all the plastic that everything is packaged in. But your subject is really fresh water mm-hmm. and how the microplastics can get in there. How do they get in there? Well, the microplastics are uh, everywhere, of course. Now, to some extent, micro beads, they are the man-made plastics in the micro scale come with pharmaceutical products, cosmetic products particularly. Now that is a process which is probably coming to an end. Quite a few European countries have banned now uh, cosmetic products with, 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 with beads. So that's not too much of a worry in the future. But it's the, uh, the, the, the plastics which degrade. So bigger pieces of plastic which slowly degrade. And that could be the, the, almost like a mechanical process. Pieces of cl- uh, plastics are clashing, bits breaking off, grinding almost, and slowly a big piece of plastic becomes thousands of small pieces. Um, so that, that is a major threat. But there's an, uh, an additional one we were only starting to recognize. And... Uh, I have a nice fleece, which is very comfortable in the winter, right? If I put that in the washing machine every single time, we're talking about thousands of polyester fibers ending up in the water with the washing machine. And that's just one fleece. So these are plastics, but they are not round beads. They're fibers. So kind of hair-like structures, like the hair on our head. Uh, That is probably, and most data seems to suggest that now, the most common form of plastic in the fresh water environment. So fibers form clothes. Fascinating. A lot of work to be done still then. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because the, the thing is actually one, what happens when those fibers are in contact with organisms. If I may deviate for a second from a scientific topic, I remember a very first girlfriend I have at a small boy. I was eight years old in my class. And that was a girl with long blonde hair. And she was always putting her hair in her mouth. At one stage, she had this, this blockage in her gut of hair ingested. But that, in a way, if you think about fibers, they have that same kind of size. So if they are ingested by small organisms, are they going to call blockages, cause blockages in the gut? Are they going to, to affect the whole uptake of food by those organisms? So these are all the big questions we, are, we, we need to ask. We know that the fibers are in very large amounts in the environment. We know that the fibers get in all kinds of organisms, take a fish, digest it, and you will 100% find fibers. But we don't actually know still very well the consequences then for the health of that fish, the well-being, the reproduction, and so on. That's where the real challenge is going to be.
Professor Marcel Janssen of University College Cork warning about microplastics in the marine environment. On the offshore islands, communities are developing island sustainability through energy production, introducing electric buses, as Rhoda Twombly, Secretary of the Islands Federation, Kogal Ilana Heron, reports from her base on the island of Inishlaer in Clue Bay. What's the old saying about March? In like a lion and out like a lamb? Well, we're looking forward to the lamb part of the month, with lovely, calm and sunny days, fingers crossed. A key pillar of island sustainability is not only working as efficiently as possible with available resources, but exploring new methods to improve our technology and environment. The EU is focusing on cleaning up and cutting down on the carbon produced and generating energy all over Europe. Islands are seen not only as microcosms perfect for testing the efficacy of new technology, but also as societies that would hugely benefit from implementing more efficient and cleaner ways of powering themselves. The Aran Islands have long been interested in alternative energy production. In 2012, the cooperative group CFOT was formed to explore methods to improve energy efficiency and alternative energy sources on Inishmore and Inishman. Inishir has a separate energy committee also working towards energy sustainability. So far, they've been very successful in bringing projects to the islands, including finding funding to improve energy efficiency in homes and businesses, a successful three-year pilot project involving electric vehicles, and participation in four research and development projects. Ilan Clara was at the forefront of integrated wind energy systems back in the late 80s, with the turbine system providing electricity to the island until the early 90s. At the moment, they are sourcing two electric buses to provide community transport. The community is keen to press ahead with plans to further develop renewable energy sources. The news at Erin has been chosen as one of the 26 islands to participate in the European Commission initiative to kickstart the energy transition process is very welcome as is the news that Ilan Clara will also participate by the summer of 2020. This initiative is supported by the European Commission's Clean Energy for EU Islands Secretariat, and the islands were chosen based on their potential for creating a successful transition to clean energy. Key to this project will be the bottom-up approach, depending on in-depth consultations with all island stakeholders, private citizens, community groups, businesses, schools, athletic groups, and all involved with island development. The Clean Energy EU Islands Secretariat will endeavour to help as many EU islands as possible to plan for their transition into a more energy-efficient existence, lending them support and expert advice. The benefits of sustainable, renewable, and efficient energy systems on islands are fairly obvious, But another bonus is the probability of new employment opportunities plus the making the islands more attractive places to move to. While at the moment only the Aran Islands and Ilanclira are involved in this project, we hope to attract all of our islands into this or similar projects in the near future. On a personal note, myself and the board of Kogalilan Aran would like to extend our deepest sympathy to John Walsh, coordinator of the Bear Island Projects Group, and his extended family on the passing of Mary Walsh of Bear Island and Mayfield, County Cork. May she rest in peace. 
Rhoda Twombly reporting from the offshore islands. Now Justin Marr runs up other maritime news from at home and abroad, and we hear how an attempt to find the endurance that Shackleton's famous ship had to be abandoned in the Antarctic ice when weather beat the most modern of expedition technology. A British-led sea expedition searching for Ernest Shackleton's lost ship Endurance, which was lost in the Weddell Sea in Antarctica, have had to abandon their attempt. An international team of marine archaeologists, glaciologists, oceanographers and marine biologists had launched an expedition to study the Larsen Sea ice shelf, from which a trillion-ton iceberg broke away 18 months ago. While there, they hoped to find the wreck of the Endurance, which Shackleton's crew had to abandon as the waters around the ship froze. The crew of the Endurance would go on to survive for 17 months in makeshift camps. An autonomous underwater vehicle was deployed at the wreck site with the aim of locating and photographing the lost ship, but it slipped under an ice floe and out of contact. As weather conditions worsened, the team had to give up trying to recover the vehicle. Holly Hewitt, a member of the Weddell Sea Expedition Team, spoke online to classrooms about the conditions they faced. We had to abort the search for the wreck because the ice was enclosing very, very quickly and there was hugely mm. thick fog. And it was very, very dangerous for us to stay where we were, which gives us an indication of what Shackleton and his men actually went through. You know, we, we had to leave in this modern polar research vessel that can break through the ice. What Shackleton and his men must have experienced living on the ice floe in a wooden ship, it's impressive. And it only reiterates to us how much of heroes all of those men were. The Irish Coast Guard has told its volunteer units around the country that they can no longer use blue emergency lights or sound their sirens while driving on public roads. Coast Guard management outlined that the move will reduce the risks associated with driving blue light vehicles on public roads and follows best practice as endorsed by the Road Safety Authority on the issue. The directive has caused a lot of concern, according to Fianna Fáil TD Dara Kaliri, who said that members are fearful of the potential delays this will cause. Described as Ireland's fourth blue light service, the Coast Guard has 950 volunteers in 43 units nationwide. 26 European islands have officially launched their clean energy transition with the support of the European Commission's Clean Energy for EU Islands Secretariat. The Aran Islands are included, as is Cape Clear. Aran is in the first phase to develop and publish a clean energy transition agenda by this summer while Cape Clear is to do so in the second phase by next summer. The 26 islands were selected based on their potential for establishing a high-quality transition process to inspire as many of the 2,200 inhabited islands within the EU over the coming years. And finally, 52 hungry polar bears have occupied Guba, a work settlement in a remote Russian Arctic archipelago. The animals reportedly attacked locals, ransacked garbage dumps and barged into residential buildings, according to a government statement this weekend. The massive invasion of polar bears prompted regional officials to declare a state of emergency. Researchers at the Moscow Institute of Ecology and Evolution said that thinning sea ice caused by global warming likely drove the bears inland in search of more readily available meals.
Next news from the Lifeboat Service, reported from RNLI headquarters in Swords County, Dublin, by Neve Stevenson, as she describes changes at Wicklow Station with a relief Shannon class arriving to replace the Tyne class boat there, which is the last of its type operating in Irish waters. The relief lifeboat will have a temporary berth at the South Quay. Each lifeboat class has a unique slip to launch from, and as the Shannon is very different to the Tyne class, this temporary mooring near the station will support it until Wicklow receives its permanent Shannon. A large turnout of family, friends and supporters gathered on the pier in Wicklow as the station's all-weather and inshore lifeboats escorted the relief Shannon into the harbour, while a lone piper on the East Pier played a musical tribute to signal the arrival. Staff coxswain Pete Hamscon accompanied the crew on the training passage, but it was coxswain Nick Kyo who had the honour of bringing the relief Shannon into Wicklow Harbour. A short, impressive display of the boat's speed and agility was greeted with wild applause from the crowd before it came alongside the pier. The rest of my report is a sad one and is in memory of two Oranali people we lost recently. In his time with the Oranali, Martin Smith worked as divisional inspector in the east of the UK, Ireland and the Isle of Man before coming to work in operational policy. On moving to Ireland and declaring himself a fish out of water, he endeared himself to his new colleagues and the Ornali volunteers and staff on the Irish coast by becoming what locals refer to as more Irish than the Irish themselves and settled into Talonstown, County Loud and embraced the best of Irish culture and hospitality. He fought his illness with great courage and determination and when he received the news that his time was short, he filled his remaining days with calls and visits from friends, staff and lifeboat crew. He is survived by his beloved wife Rachel, his brother Duncan and his many, many friends. He has left an incredible legacy in the Ornali, but he has left us too soon. We have wonderful memories of his time with us. Sadly, Martins wasn't the only Ornali bereavement recently. We also said goodbye to Matty Stafford, Ackle Island's esteemed former crewman, emergency coxswain and current deputy launching authority. The station paid tribute to Matty with the following. Matty brought his many skills and ability, not least in the fields of seamanship and mechanics, to the Ackle Island lifeboat over many long years. There were few problems on land or on sea that would get the better of Matty. We will miss his advice, experience and camaraderie and the Ackle Island lifeboat family will be the purer for his untimely passing. Fair winds and tight lines to them both. Neve Stevenson reporting from the RNLI. Irish anglers have won another world award. The Irish Federation of Sea Anglers men's team won silver medals at the World Shore Angling Championships in South Africa. John O'Brien from Waterford was team manager and he was also a member of the Irish team which won gold in the championships there in 2010. A successful return for him to that country as he told Justin Marr. Now the Irish team is dedicated. Supported by the federation they are but they still paid around €2,000 each to fund their participation. As manager you are always delighted for your team. I'm proud of them. They put in fantastic work in the week's practice beforehand and rose to the occasion on the days of the competition. And 
each one of them put in a very solid performance and a great team effort. And that's what pays off in the end. There's a hunger amongst the lads to make the team. We have a qualification system. You have to be fishing your competitions and you've got to be getting results. And it takes a lot of effort on anyone to qualify for a team. You are manager of this year's team, but in, in 2010, you were part of the team that won gold. What is this experience like to be a part of a team that has such success? It's absolutely fantastic, Justin. Uh, 2010 was the first time an Irish team had won the World Championship. And the success that we had in South Africa prompted a lot of lads to knuckle down and start fishing hard to qualify for our teams. And since 2010, we've had uh, two bronze medals. We won it again in 2016, and we've had a... Another uh, recent success in South Africa with second. So it's like any sport, whether it be hurling or rugby or anything. When a team is successful, other people want to be part of that and join in that success. So this achievement, it's not just the result of a sporting commitment, it's a result of a financial commitment as well. Lads give up their holidays as well. In a lot of cases, they give up family time for this. And it's true love of fishing and love of representing their country. The Irish Federation of Sea Anglers and the Angling Council of Ireland are doing everything they can to secure funding for our teams from the government. And we are slowly making progress in that aspect. But it's a long road and we need to get more recognition for the success that our teams, particularly our shore angling teams, are having. Apart from the men's team, our ladies' team, they have already won the World Championship. And our juniors have been going to the World Championship for the last two years. And they have picked up a silver medal in under-21s and a bronze medal last year. So all of our shore angling teams are really doing well internationally. And it's probably about time that the powers that be in the government recognise this and I don't think there's any sport in Ireland that are achieving the success rates that sea angling is at the moment. John O'Brien, manager of Ireland's world-winning angling team, talking to Justin Marr. And in this edition of the International Year of the Salmon magazine, the current edition of Shirk and Comment is talking about the the role of salmon. Chief Executive of Inland Fisheries Ireland, Dr. Kieran Byrne, writes, Salmon, who cares? It's worth reading. And in our next edition, the eye of a photographer sees an unusual phenomenon on the seashore, a creepy tide. It was the first time I've ever seen and the last time I've ever seen this, Tom. They, I was below in Valley Cronin, it's a beach in East Cork, and the, the tide was coming in slowly and the water started to creep along the sand like oil. It was the first time I've ever got a reflection of the clouds actually on the water. Normally you'll get it on the sand when the water retreats, but this is the first time I've ever seen this and I thought it was fascinating. I took it and I've uh, been looking to see it ever since and I haven't seen it. It's a most unusual phenomenon. Photographer Rory O'Connor will discuss what it takes to capture images of the sea. This Island Nation, the Maritime Programme, is produced at CRY 104FM Yall on the East Cork coastline. Production and technical supervision by Justin Marr and broadcast nationally through the community radio network around Ireland in Dublin on Near FM, Dublin City, Liffey Sound and Dublin South. On Dundalk FM, Athlone Community Radio, in Galway on Connemara Community Radio and Kinvara FM, in Clare on Radio Corka Boschke, 
Dean and in Limerick on West Limerick 102FM with podcasts on iTunes, Mixcloud, Soundcloud and the Marine Times. Wherever you've been listening, thank you for being part of the Maritime Community on Community Radio. Program number for contact is phone 0872-555-197. That's phone 0872-555-197. Also text and email thisislandnation at gmail.com. And every week, the This Island Nation blog on our Facebook page, where this week there's a photograph of the restored island, the famous boat of Conor O'Brien after 13 years of work. You can see her in full sail for the first time. Until our next programme from me, Tom McSweeney, the usual wish of fair sailing. <laughs>